At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Wimbach here, the world messenger, and I have epic guests with me here today. I cannot wait for you guys to hear what he has to share. I mean, he is super humble. He's amazing shark attorney, but you will never know. He is super accomplished. He used to be an urban league for greater New Orleans, then also in Los Angeles, which is a completely different animal, which we cannot wait to hear about that as well. Chairman of the airport board, which is insane and speaks to itself. Also being able to uh, create and partner and create something amazing that helps athletes around the world with the smart mouth mouth guard and so much more activist, human rights supporter, and major schmoover and shaker. So without further ado, let me introduce you, Nolan Rollins. Ro Nolan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Isabella. It is wonderful to be here with you. I cannot wait to pick all of these questions that I have in my head, and it's so awesome to have you with us as well. I mean, look at the trajectory of things, and it's most of stuff I'm sure that we don't know yet about you're going to share with us. You're very humble, down to earth, extremely smart and savvy, and you bring always a game uh, to the table. So with that in mind, do you mind sharing a little bit about your early upbringings and how this journey started for this awesomeness? to unfold yeah well listen again I just I thank you for being here and it's just uh, anytime that I get to talk a bit about me with a friend it just makes a difference right it, it really makes someone someone who I really truly respect and someone who is really doing incredible things both globally and and here in America um, so it is wonderful to be here with you I mean for me it really started as a little boy I grew up in Baltimore City and um I grew up uh, with my mother and kind of this extended family with aunts and grandparents. And um, I was kind of that child that they doted over because they really believed that there was an opportunity for me to do something that no one else in my family had done before. And that was go to college. So they really seeded everything into me. They really made sure that I was taken care of. They really sure, made sure that um, I had the best that they could possibly offer, even the things that they didn't know. Again, they didn't know about college. They didn't know anyone who went to college. They didn't know how to get to college. But what they did know is that if they put me in a position to be in a trajectory around people who will be going to college, I would have a better chance. So my mother, um, she, she did what any mother would do. We lived in Baltimore City, but she used the address of a friend who was out in Howard County. So I could go to a much better school system so I could go, it was a public school system in Howard County, but if I was in Baltimore, I would have gone to a much worse school and the likelihood of going to college would have been little to none. And quite frankly, the likelihood of me doing anything other than standing on the corner selling drugs, which was probably the more likely outcome. But my mother knew that she knew what she didn't know, but she knew where she could get what I needed. So she sent me to school and I went to public school uh, out in the county uh, my whole life and candidly, 
it was this 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 interesting juxtaposition of leaving the block that I lived on that was poverty stricken that was people did not have a lot they did what they could with what they had and then going to the county with kids who you know they were sixth or seventh generation college goer they had parents who were lawyers and doctors and judges and all of these things that I had never even thought of before and seeing things in the school like in my middle school there was a planetarium I didn't even know what a planetarium was until I get to middle school and I see this thing and I start falling in love with the stars and planets and things so I truly my world was truly opened up by a woman who didn't know how to get there but she knew that there was a place that would help me get there and that was really the impetus the impetus was a ton of love the impetus was a ton of cajoling the impetus was uh, me being able to see how hard life is, as opposed to hard, how easy it can be, and really starting to think critically about how do I begin to close that gap for myself, so that I can then be that person in the family that uh, that folks can actually uh, model themselves after. So, so that was the early life for me, and and I will tell you that that regardless of the challenges, regardless of any of those things, I wouldn't change it. I would not be having this conversation with you but for my mother, but for my grandmother, but for my grandfather, I would not be able to have this conversation because those were, that's where the seed was planted from a, from a critical thought standpoint. That's where the seed was planted from a social justice standpoint. That's where the seed was planted from a, this is America, you roll up your sleeves and work hard. It's never going to be easy, but it sure as hell is going to be possible. So, so that was the early life for me. That was early life for me. Wow, what an incredible story and what a great attitude. And for everybody that is watching and listening this from global perspective, uh, we'll ask Nolan to share a little bit about um, obviously what is to be living in that environment, but obviously seeking alternative and looking for better opportunities. Uh, kudos to your mother and your grandparents and everyone who not only raised you well and nurtured that, but also wanted for you to, uh, to have that regeneration break, right? And have a different opportunities. Growing in Baltimore and for everybody that knows, even right now, things improved slightly, but over centuries, I mean, centuries, over at least 40, 50 years, were just a lot of um, interesting things happening culturally there and um, social economics and segregation and crime and many other elements that truly put a lot of people in poverty state in a disadvantage and some of them stayed in that uh, mindset right that's absolutely right i mean um you know it, it, there are cities around not just not just around this country but around the world who actually needs a underclass and quite frankly, you know, we have this beautiful thing called the Constitution that's supposed to help us with all of these incredible rights. But the truth is that access to the Constitution is only by virtue of the, the, the larger society seeing your value. And until the larger society sees your actual value or you kick down the door to show them your value, you will be in this perpetual underclass. So when you think about a place like Baltimore, you know, you're talking about crime, you're talking about murder, you're talking about social economic challenges, and I'm talking about now. I'm not talking about 10 years, 15, 20 years ago, I'm talking about now. And the reality is, is that the disinvestment in our, in our urban areas, and even in some of our rural, rural areas around the country, it's, it is, it's criminal. It's absolutely criminal, because the truth is, if the Constitution is what people say it is, then those resources should be getting to the least of these, not just to those who can actually 
do things on their own or for themselves. So, you know, Baltimore is a very, very tough town. It's a very difficult city and the chances of getting out and, and being able to do something in life are very, they're just slim. They're really, and it's really, it's difficult to have to say that in 2021 because I could have said that when I was growing up in the 80s. I could have said, like, really the same. And the truth is, and it's not just Baltimore, it's Philly, it's DC, it's New York. I mean, it's around the world. It's, it's places in Africa, it's places in Europe. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, it's a really off-putting thing because as a society, we quickly begin to understand what the society believes is important because you show me how you spend your money, I'll show you where your values are. So if you aren't supporting our communities, if you aren't helping the schools to actually be what they're supposed to be for our folks, creating the job opportunities that should be there, then we know that, you, that, that the system at large cares little to nothing about the folks who are there creating this perpetual underclass that is just about living for the day, that is just about how do I make sure that I'm doing something that is supporting the needs of someone else? Because it's really how do, how do we take this group of people who we want to make sure is a, a, a perpetual underclass and ensure that they are supporting the, 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 the wealthy class, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm from a family where the vast majority of my family have been domestics. So they've always worked in someone else's houses. They've always worked in, in, the, uh, in, in churches and rectories. They've always driven people um, I, my grandfather drove the uh, one of a, a sports writer. His name is Bob Meisel. He used to write for the sports uh, magazine uh, for in the Baltimore Sun. He was the sports reporter, and he would drive in places and take him in places. But the interesting thing was, he would take him to places where he was interviewing Baltimore Orioles players. So my grandfather met all of these incredible players and got this bat from Boog Powell, who was one of the greatest Baltimore Orioles ever. And he eventually gave me that bat. Now, my grandfather could not give me education. He could not give me money. But what he could give me is something that he got from a place that there was great value in the world. And I give, I've given that same bat to my son. So that bat that my grandfather, a domestic who was driving a white gentleman around, who was a, a news reporter for the Baltimore Sun, who had him at the, at the ball field, that bat is now in the hands of a 17-year-old who has a lineage that is so long and so connected, but so challenging by something as, as interesting as a bat that's been passed down through generations because that bat has a story. Yes, yes. And also has a story of victory and perseverance and overcoming and then seeing other side of that, right? Through the lens of... Um, surviving and and then finding ways to be thriving and i thank you so much for walking us through that and sharing that amazing parts of history because a lot of people truly don't understand even in the united states little one around the world right uh, what it takes in environments that are very challenging to survive and how real survival is and and how social economics disparages situations are not giving people opportunities not because based of their intellect 
gift and capability, but just based on their upbringing and circumstances. So I'm glad you broke that cycle. I'm glad you took the amazing strides and opportunities. So do you mind sharing what was your pivotal moment when obviously starting that middle school, being in, uh, exposed to different environments, how did you decide to practice law and, and get on that trajectory? Yeah, so, so it was a really interesting thing. So um, I finished high school, then I wind up going to a, a historically black college, Virginia State University. And, and there was where I really start to, so, so, so one thing is that's the place where I actually first met African-Americans who actually had money. I, I had not met African-Americans who were second or third generation college goer, their parents were like, it was a really interesting thing for me to actually see, that's number one. But two, the, the folks at Virginia State University really challenged us when it comes to education. Now, I, I went to Virginia State to, um, to actually wrestle. So I was a collegiate wrestler and that was the way that I actually got out of the city was, was, uh, was there on a, to, to wrestle. But when I got there, I truly began to realize that I was way more than just a wrestler. I actually had a brain and there were people, there were professors who seeded into us and challenged us in a way that said, you're not here for athletics. You're here to strengthen your mind and your critical thinking abilities. So for me, I spent a tremendous amount of time um, working on, on my studies and uh, wound up getting a degree in public administration and economics because what I was, I'm, I'm just, I'm a simple builder and I did not know this back then. I always wanted to understand how things worked. And I always want to understand how they work, but why they work. And when they didn't work, why didn't they work? So for me, economics was understanding what makes, again, I said it a little earlier, you show me how you spend your money, I'll show you where your values lie. For me, there's always an economic conversation to be had simply because that's where the real um, heart of a society is. It's where it puts its money. And then the public administration side for me was really about understanding government. How do governments operate? How do they make decisions? Where is the real power structure? So I really began that very early on and said, you know, that's really the, the thing for me. So I finished undergrad. I make a decision that, um, that I'm not done with school. So I decided to go to grad school. So what I did was I went to the University of Baltimore and got a uh, master's degree in law and society. And again, the thought was, it was, I understand economics. I understand how government works. Now I wanna understand the law because clearly inside of these economic pieces, inside of how government works is tons of legislation, but I wanna understand the law from not just a, here's what the law is. It's how did the law get here? How did it start? Where did it start? And for whom did it start? So for me, that legal, ethical, and historical studies was a huge space. So from there, I finished at the University of Baltimore, got my master's degree, and then I was thinking, you know what, I'm gonna go and be a professor. I said, you know what, I'm gonna go to NYU, I'm gonna be a professor. So I make a decision to go to NYU, and I, I knock on wood now, it was painful then, but I got waitlisted. I did not get in right away to NYU. So a professor at the University of Baltimore, who I was actually a, um, uh, I was a, a teacher's assistant for. He said, listen, I'm going to a law school down in Florida. I'm going to be a professor there. You should think about law school. And I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. So again, it was a professor who saw something in me that identified this is probably a really good area for you. Again, I had not even thought about law school, but it was someone who 
I had spent a lot of time with, who I was working with, who I was actually helping to co-teach classes with while I was there uh, at the University of Baltimore. And lo and behold, I wound up going to Florida and going to law school. And again, really focusing in on two areas, again, both contract law and the constitution. So I go to law school and that's my focus. I focus again, contracts, right? So it goes from public administration and economics to how the law works to the constitution and on top of the constitution, contracts. Because again, these are everything, when I look back at it now, everything that I was interested in, they're the building blocks of every society that you would ever imagine and or name but I didn't put my finger on it in that way. It was just my curiosity about how things work. Some people like to tinker under the hood. I love to tinker under the hood of both humanity and tinker under the hood of society. So be, really being able to focus in those areas where, where it was really important to me. So, um, so law school was great for me. I loved being challenged to think. I loved challenging kind of conventional wisdoms around um, what the law was and how it existed. And, and really, I mean, you know, the beautiful thing about the, the, the legal profession is it's an adversarial system, which means that it automatically has two opposing sides, which means that no one is wrong until someone is actually said to be more right than the other. And that's a really interestingly beautiful thing that I think is, is really elegant about the law. And uh, while the law does have a, it's, it's often a, uh, hammer in a in a velvet uh, sleeve but it's a it's a very interesting thing for me though. I love your perspective and I love how a law and how, how you think about law how you approach it and then a concentration that you focused on constitution and contracts and 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 how important it is more than ever actually in the modern times and current times that we live in um, but I also love what you mentioned, representation, right? When somebody sees the gift and sees what you're capable of and they want to what's in best interest for you and, and they take you under their wing and nurture that and make you start believing in yourself, what you're capable and look at where are you today? How amazing accomplishments are as a result of those nurturing relationships. So with that in mind, Nolan, you obviously are phenomenally what you do from legal standpoint. And I have to say, guys, I'm being in legal system um, as a supporter <laughs> for decades in this country. And, and there's very few attorneys that I can say, oh my God, he doesn't feel or sound and look like, like a typical attorney. And in the same time, that brilliant mind and doesn't overpower and doesn't overuse the power but knows it's so knowledgeable so fluid and brings the human element to that and i just wanted to say kudos that is a very very rare trait uh serving state of colorado for decades and united states and seeing so many dynamics in my capacity i, I just wanted to say that's very rare uh, but I would love to now see like you from there took us in a different journey. And I know um, a lot of things happened since then. I mean, you've been serving in Urban League and do you mind now sharing how did you combine the passion and brought that aspects of humanity through Urban League and outlet to serve in New Orleans and also in very crazy and different environment in LA? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. When I, when I look back at it now, it's, it is one of those things that if you, if you wrote my story, it would be unbelievable, but it's true. 
Like it, it would just be unbelievable. You have these incredible people seeding into my life along the way. And the way that the Urban League winds up happening is so I'm, I'm finishing law school and I have a mentor who says, hey, when you get back to Baltimore, I actually wanna introduce you to someone. So the person that she introduced me to was a man named J. Howard Henderson. Now, there are people who have seeded into me that allow me, Isabel, to be having this conversation with you that the world will never know. But I can promise you that I would not be sitting here with you if they didn't exist. And Jay Howard is one of them. I mean, he, um, he was the, the, the deputy at the National NAACP for 15 years under Ben Hooks. He was a retired uh, Air Force guy. And um, he was the, the president and CEO of the Urban League in Baltimore. And he said to me, you know, when you get your first real job, I want you to do something for me. Well, what he wanted me to do was to, to, to organize a group of young folks and create the Urban League Young Professionals in Baltimore. And that's just what we did. We created this tremendous arm of the Urban League for young professionals helping from a training standpoint, getting them civically engaged. I mean, it didn't exist in Baltimore. It didn't exist. So we literally had to create it. And to this day, it's still thriving. It's been, we created it in 2001 and it is thriving now. And there's, there's been president after president. It does incredible work uh, in Baltimore City. Um, but the brilliant thing for me was at that time, I was in the state's attorney's office. So that's the prosecutor's office in Baltimore City. And what was disheartening about me being in the state's attorney's office was I was candidly a trained marksman. I knew what to do with my mind and with words and with the legal system in order to make sure that whoever was on the other side of the desk for me, I was going to put them in jail. And the moment that I saw, I'll never forget this so vividly, there was a, a group of about 12 little boys who couldn't have been any more than 15, the oldest of them, walking into the courtroom in shackles on their feet and shackles on their hands. And I said to myself right then and there, I've got to figure out how I can do something that prevents those little boys from ever having to see a person like me who's prosecuting them. I've got to figure out how do we keep these little boys out of shackles? How do we make sure that the criminal justice system does not have an opportunity to feed their beautiful black bodies into the coal that makes the criminal justice system go forward? And from that moment on, I left the state's attorney's office. I went to work for the Urban League itself. And Howard Henderson, who was the CEO, taught me how to build taught me how to turn around and taught me everything that I know about civil rights, everything that I know about social justice. And the beauty is it, I went from there working directly for him. At the same time, I became the president of the National Urban League Young Professionals. So I was the first one to sit on the National Urban League's board. So when I came on the board, I came on with the president of Shell Oil at that time, the president of Pitney Bowes, um, the president of Toyota, we all came through together. So I'm literally at 27, 28, sitting on the National Urban League boards with these titans of industry, but I'm advocating for a young professional group of people around the nation who are, who are advocates. So it was just an amazing thing again, but for my mother, but for my grandmother, but for my grandfather, I'm not sitting at this table with captains of industry, Fortune 100 company folks advocating for the people who aren't in the room, for the people who actually need their, their ear, their resources, and their attention. So it was an, a really interesting uh, opportunity. 
So then the national organization came to me and said, hey, we wanna figure out if we can home grow our own leaders and see if we can turn them into an affiliate CEO and then be successful. So they came to me and said, hey, what do you think about these areas? I was like, no, I don't wanna go to any of these places. It was like 12 different places. <laughs> they came back and said, well, what do you think about New Orleans? I was like, that's exactly where I wanna go. It's post Katrina, the place is decimated and nowhere for me, if you send me into something that's working, I'll, I'll probably break it so I can fix it. But if something <laughs> that's not working and that needs to be thought through and needs to be systematized and needs to create a real space for people, that's exactly where I want to be. That's where I thrive most. So, uh, one of the most, one of the most beautiful opportunities that I had at I was 33, 34 was to become the uh, was to become the CEO of the Urban League in New Orleans, responsible for rebuilding the, the, the physical plant of the Urban League itself, rebuilding the organization. And, you know, quite frankly, when we dropped down on the floor, the first thing we did was we beat down every door that we could find, raised $7 million really quickly, and took that money and paid first month's rent for people, bought um, appliances for folks, paid last month's rent, helped them to get their houses redone again. I mean, it was really important for me to be able to do that. But it was also important for me as a person who came in from Baltimore to be able to do the same thing for the people who were working with me. Because what most people didn't understand was the people who were surrounding me, well, they lost their houses too. Wow. too. But these people were still serving that community and the folks that they loved so much. So who am I to complain about anything? Only thing I was there to do was to roll up my sleeves make sure that these folks were taking care of folks because these hands took care of the people who needed taken care of, but they also needed taken care of themselves. So it was just an amazing opportunity to make a huge difference, not just rebuilding the organization, not just helping thousands and thousands of people, but doing some interestingly strategic things like using kind of my contracts and my understanding of tax law brain to use new market tax credits to build facilities for the community. So we built facilities in the ninth ward for the community. Now, it was one part because the community needed those facilities, but it was another part, there was a lot of talk about not rebuilding the ninth ward, about not having anything happen there. And what I knew factually is that for an urban league to make an investment in a place like the ninth ward, the politics would not line up against us to not rebuild the ninth ward. So we intentionally built there because we would not let them not rebuild in the ninth ward. Because here's the little dirty secret that most people don't know, that pre-Katrina, the ninth ward of New Orleans had the largest African-American home ownership in the nation. Wow. In the nation. Nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. So for me, when the ninth ward is decimated like that, and the powers that be are saying, no, we're not going to build it back. And not only are we not going to build it back, the money that we're going to give you for the house that you used to have there is the money that was the value of your house when you bought it. Ridiculous. Wow, that is crazy. Right? So, so the, this, is, this is how the Corps of Engineers, this is how literally this was how the federal money was actually being used that it was giving people in the ninth ward the value of their homes when they bought them. These people have been in their houses for generations. It was like a $7,000 house when they bought it for the first time. Who, who can afford to rebuild? So 
So just really interesting things like that that I'm so proud of that we really rolled up our sleeves on. And with that, the, the mayor at that time, uh, Mayor Landrieu, who I, I love to death, I, I, I truly love Mitch Landrieu, uh, he said, Nolan, I want you to be the chairman of the airport. So I was responsible for rebuilding the airport. Um, you know, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars. And for me, I made sure and everyone knew that if you were going to try to get a contract in, 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 the, uh, in New Orleans airport, you better have minorities on your team. Mm. Because otherwise, don't even think about it. So everyone knew that if, if there was ever going to be a contract, I don't care what your you better have minorities on your team. You better have women. You better have people of color. You better have them on your team. Otherwise, you can forget an opportunity to actually make money in New Orleans at the airport. So it was, I, was, I, I love the opportunity to rebuild that airport. And then at the same time, uh, the mayor wanted to build a new airport. So we did all of the due diligence and found the money to actually build a new airport. So when your listeners go to the new airport that exists there now, that was us. That was the work that we did. That was the work. Unbelievable. Wow. So, so that was my... My, my New Orleans time. And then no good deed goes unpunished. They kick me out of New Orleans and say, go rebuild the Urban League in LA. And the mayor, <laughs> the mayor talks to the mayor in LA and says, you need to put this guy on your airport commission because he can really help you with the airport. And no good deed goes unpunished. The mayor here puts me on the airport commission. So, you know, it's I have had a just a storybook life, but my storybook is always in every single chapter, verse, and word has been about how can I help other folks? Because the truth is, I, I know that I'm the exception. I know that I'm one of the few who I grew up with in my community to even go to college. I know that I'm the only in my family to at that time to have gone to college, now creating a path for others. And I also have known that that means that I owe a great debt to the universe. I owe a debt to the universe that I must continue fighting the way that I'm fighting continue evolving my fight because the truth is the way that the fight looked looked for me as a 27 year old it doesn't look the same as a 47 year old it just doesn't look the same and the expectations are different and the level of how I need to unpack things that looks a bit different but it's just been an amazing journey and uh, the thing that I'm most proud of is is just the the list of people who uh, their lives have been impacted by the work that we've done and and quite frankly, I'm as excited about kind of the present because I actually think that, you know, when you when you when you get a chance to to do the kinds of things that I've gotten a chance to do at such a young age, you get a longer time as you get older to use that wisdom to force real change. So my words aren't pedantic words of a person who's read them from a book. My words are experienced, lived experiences that, you know, that you just don't get everywhere. And I know, again, it is by virtue of everyone who has seeded into me up until this point. So I'm just a, an extremely blessed person who, um, who has an opportunity to sit with a friend like you and just figure out how do we continue to make the world a better place than it was when we got here and a better place than it was when we grew up. So, so yeah, that's-, that's what, a, what a powerful journey. How much, obviously, that required to embrace it, 
uh, trust it and go with it and put the best effort. You make sound like almost effortless in many ways, but I know how much of dedication, hard work has to be behind the scene and how eloquently you share this in terms of, you know, the projects that carry on. And as a result, when we show up, when we do our best, right, others seize and, and, and as a result, they're giving you another opportunity and another opportunity. And in a way you're creating your own destiny. And so it's like already you established such a powerful legacy in terms of for what you did so far. Uh, the work that you've been doing, obviously, it's not easy. It's extremely complex. But I love how much you support and advocate for civil rights, for people, uh, and overall how you play the conduit between government entities and people. And that is very, very noble and much so needed more than ever today. So with that in mind, what is coming next? What are you super excited about it? And, and, and where, where are you headed, Nolan, so that everybody can kind of see because your appetite to continue to give and support its undying and, and your passion is definitely evident. It would be great to hear. What are you jumping into now? Yeah, so, so now we are, we're building a technology company. And um, again, I, I am, I'm a sum total of my experiences. And um, we have a technology called SmartMouth. And really SmartMouth, again, I mentioned a little earlier that I was a, um, a collegiate wrestler. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I was in the hospital about three or four times for dehydration, again, this was my way to really do something, get an education. I had to put my body on the line and I was cutting weight and dehydrated. In another instance, I was uh, in an athletic sport and I knocked my front tooth out. So again, just a list of things that, um, that were really, they were, they were incredibly important for what we're building now, but they were interesting turning points in my life. One, understanding that I can't continue to put my, my body on the line, like I've got to strengthen my mind. So what we're doing with Smart Mouth is we've actually developed a mouth guard and think, put it in your mouth, you're an athlete, you put the mouth guard in your mouth, it tells you your core body temperature, heart rate, um, COVID symptom detection. Um, it actually has an impact detector on it. So how fast you're going and if you stop really quickly, what that does to the brain. So just a list of things that are really about saving lives. I mean, I don't know if you've heard lately, so just um, about a week ago, Sunday, a, uh, a young man who was a football player at Virginia Union University passed out and died from heat. Literally, we wow. have not died because of that. You fast forward, this, that's Sunday. You fast forward to Tuesday, two coaches in Atlanta, um, they actually, a, a, a little girl who was um, doing basketball practice about two years ago, they were outside, it was about 101 to 103 degrees, a little girl died. The two coaches have now been charged with murder and manslaughter. It just happened the other day, it just happened on, on um, Thursday, on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, a young fella in Ohio, uh, in, yeah, in, uh, in Omaha was playing football. Young kid, this kid couldn't have been more than 13 or 14 years old. He died heat. So again, for me, it's how do I look at the 35 million children that are playing mandatory, that are playing sports where it's required that you wear a mouth guard, and we help to make sure that they can live another day. And for us, that's what Smart Mouth is about. It is about, it's not just about making sure that someone is, is at peak performance. It is literally about saving lives. Because imagine if one of the three times 
three or four times that I fell sick because of dehydration, I actually died. Mm. That is so powerful. Where we could, we could very well not be having this conversation because I could have died. And that's what smart mouth is. Smart mouth is about making sure that there's never another Nolan, never another Jordan, a young brother named Jordan. He was actually at the University of Maryland. He died a couple of years ago. He's playing football for them. It's like it, those are senseless things. They're senseless things. So for us, it was how do we create this really elegant solution that is going to keep people alive, that's going to let them know um, what their body is doing and what their body is saying to them long before they're in a danger zone. So it's just one of those things that is, um, you know, really personal to me. Uh, at the same time, you know, I mentioned it before, I'm a builder. Like I'm always interested in building interesting things that make a difference. And this technology company is just that. I mean, it, it, it may feel different to people. They may say lawyer to civil rights, to airports, to building a technology company. Yes, and it all makes sense. It absolutely all makes sense. Now, it only it may only make sense directly to me because of the way that my mind works, but its outcome and the kinds of people that we actually have working with us in each phase of my trajectory and each phase of my development, you know, it, it all winds up making sense because at, at my core, I believe fundamentally that the universe works for me in a very specific way. It tells me every time your job is to bring messages to people so that the people that need to be supported get the things that they need. Mm. If you do your job, you're gonna be okay. I believe in karma. I believe in the universe. I believe in those things. So, you know, that's what smart mouth is. Smart mouth is just another opportunity for us to take incredible technology, save lives and make a difference for the kids who are playing sports just to get out of the situation that they're in and to get into college so that they can get into a better future. I absolutely love that journey right now where you're at because I'm very much so familiar with mouth guards that exist on the market and how that over decades changed. And, not, and you're right, focus was always on the key performance, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, preventing concussions, right? And now what you're offering is adding completely another layer of things to take into consideration. And it's amazing to see how technology works and how you were able to find the solutions that can uncover a multitude of issues and issues that actually one tool can monitor, manage, and support specifically younger athletes that are not aware of and they should know better, right? Because they're young and that when we depend on coaches, but at least now they will have that tool and opportunity to look for warning signs and look for what they need to do in order to save their life, but also to continue to enjoy playing the sport. So kudos, kudos, kudos. Um, seems like you continue to expand an amazing trajectory of your legacy again. And I'm curious, Nolan, with everything in works and everything you already did and created, tremendous legacy for yourself. What would you like to be known for and remembered by? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I, for me, someone simply remembering my humanity is the most important thing. Because I never, I, I don't show up as a lawyer. I don't show up as a leader. I don't show up as a former chairman of an airport. I don't show up that way. I show up as Nolan. Yes. And 
I think if more of us just showed up as who we are authentically, that mm -hmm. our tombstone will always say something beautiful because it will be the words of the people that we've supported, not the words that we've paid for. Yeah. So that's what I'm really the most, I, I, I just want to be remembered for my humanity. And, and, and I want to be able to people to, to say that there was a true legacy built. And, and I'll just say this, I, I have the most important thing that I've ever done in life is my 17 year old son. And this young man has, has been on the journey of a lifetime. Like he is, he has seen life at the same time that I've seen it. So he has been on every stage with me. He has traveled the world with me. And he's, he's, and I always talk about him because I do it intentionally because I actually believe that we can seed into successive generations success by showing them success, by helping them to see it. So the, the most important thing is that, that, that in addition to the humanity, being a great father, that right there is the pinnacle because I think that all we can do is really pass on legacy. That's all we can do. And the real question is what legacy are you passing on? Yes. What legacy is going to live strongest through the DNA that you bring into this world. So for me, being very transparent with this son of mine, showing him the world as I see it, both it's, it's, it's good and it's bad and helping him to really start thinking critically about what the world is. It's, that's, there's nothing more, you know, there's nothing more beautiful to me than that kid. It just isn't. That is brilliant. And for everybody listening and watching, taking away the titles and ego and stripping down to that core human level, as you're talking about, that's where magic is and where it's more tremendous reach. And I just wanted to say for time that I've been knowing you, this is what you see, this is what you get, but also amazing intellect, great passion, great collaborator, and someone who has amazing vision and knows how to put that in forefront. And it's so easy to rally around people like yourself, no because world has been through all of these other elements and they don't work and they create the pain and confusion and disconnect and power play and time right now what you're sharing is all opposite of that which really gives not only joy to my heart and my soul to see it how it's truly possible but also to be intentional right who we associate with who we're arming ourselves with and what are we creating? Are we intentional on that? And I love that you're already creating the future legacy leaders uh, like your son and an opportunity to install the values and install what really matters the most. So kudos. But I um, wanted to ask you for everyone that is watching and listening and had a chance to um, hear your tremendous journey and accomplishments. Uh, where the people can get hold of you, how they can connect specifically right now with new technology coming and phenomenal solutions, but all the tremendous work that you still keep doing on, on many different platforms. Absolutely. So um, I'm on um, all the social media platforms as Nolan V. Rollins. That's N-O-L-A-N, the letter V. Rollins, R-O-L-L-I-N-S. That's my uh, Instagram and Twitter handle. Um, it's also my LinkedIn handle. Um, if you want to hear a little bit more about Smart Mouth, you can go look at our webpage at www.smartmouth.com. And that's S-M-R-T, mouth.com. No A in the, in the Smart Mouth. Uh, we couldn't get the A. Somebody else got the A. So it's, it's smartmouth.com, S-M-R-T. Uh, you can see that work. And 
You know, um, there is, it's, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, we, we actually co-wrote a book called Social Trap, Social Theory. And um, the book was really a, how do you take these disparate groups of people in New Orleans post Katrina who would have normally never met, never talked to one another and get them working together across racial lines, across gender lines, across social economic backgrounds, across lines of sexual orientation and to help rebuild a city. So you can actually see some of uh, my writings there. And we actually uh, spent a, a fair amount of time over in Oxford actually lecturing um, using wow. that as lecture. So, you know, I, I have been, been blessed and, and, and I would just simply say this again, um, the impact that a loving mother that a loving grandmother, that and even my father, that a loving father, that a loving grandfather actually can have on a child is priceless. And I am the representation of that. So that's where you can actually see. That is brilliant. That is so beautiful also, but there's also a great lesson in that for everyone watching and listening. You can step up your game, be that better brother, sister, father, mother, whatever role you already play and elevate people, first of all, in your inner circle, right? And then obviously in the community. So uh, it was absolute pleasure to have you to share with us. We cannot wait to see how rolling of this um, smart mouth that's coming along and we'll definitely have you back on the Legacy Leaders Show. But from bottom of my heart and every team shared today, I just wanted to say thank you for being such an exceptional citizen and a role model for so many of us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to be with you today. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.